0: Am I tough enough? strong and stable leadership. Total rubar. Hell
1: yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one! It's the Politics Show podcast.
0: The podcast ain't is the Politics Show
1: podcast, ladies and gentlemen!
2: Way!
3: Come on!
1: <laughs> yes, people! Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ava Santina. Hi. How the fuck are you?
3: Well, you know. Getting on. How Ray- about you?
1: Yes. Good.
3: I was telling you about my spider bite just before we uh, mm. started this. Yes. Do you think that's something they'd enjoy?
1: It absolutely would be, right yeah.
3: All right, so I, I got bitten.
1: Are you yeah. showing it off? Yeah, I'm okay. showing it,
3: which means I got bitten by a spider on my face, mm. which means at some point when I was asleep, there was a spider on my face.
1: Your second spider bite in as many weeks?
3: Yes. So I think what the problem is, is that where my flat is, it's like a courtyard out the back, which is like my garden area situation, yeah? Yeah. And it's concrete, so it's very damp mm. and very wet mm-hmm. and that's sort of like what spiders like yeah and so I think they're kind of you they're know coming in from there yeah and um, I'm trying to be really holistic and just try to naturally keep them out by like saying things like please can you not come in here and they're not listening, um, they're not listening. and I have put down lavender well I do not that works for scorpions doesn't it yeah Does it? my nonna she puts lavender so that maybe it's an Italian thing yeah so that the scorpions don't come in
1: I've got no to be honest with you I can't even begin to possibly shoot this down because I just don't know yeah for me it seems far fetched
3: well it's not working so (laughs) clearly
1: well I guess if one arachnid is dispelled by the lavender then perhaps it works for another but yeah does she we don't have scorpions in, in the UK.
3: No, but I think in she Italy. likes to keep up the older... Are there <laughs> scorpions in Italy? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, in southern Italy, for really? sure. I mean, think about... I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, Napoli. Mm. It's, it's hot there. There are scorpions. Cool. And uh, not a good bin collection service. <laughs> They're not connected. What's
1: that? <laughs> <laughs> What's that got to do with anything? Um, Was well, it's
3: mafia run, isn't it?
1: Yes. Um, I... <laughs> Sorry, like... let
3: me just keep stating the obvious. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, what was I going to say? You can call me Il Padrino. Yeah? Guess who got made a godfather this weekend.
3: Oh, really? Yes. Okay. I am now... I'm glad, I'm so glad that was the context of that.
1: I'm, yeah, no, sorry, <laughs> I've started an organised criminal racket. No. Um, yeah, I uh, I am now slight, would you say responsible? Connected?
3: Yeah, I mean, if, God forbid, you're now, you know, they pass away, that child is yours.
1: Well then, I am custodian and waiting of a delightful three three week old
3: three week old. Gosh. I was gonna say three three years old. They really are, late, yeah. <laughs> they were biding their out. time with that.
1: Maybe someone dropped yeah. out. No, it's three weeks. So, um, yeah, there's that's a there's lovely a mafia connection for you.
3: Who are they? Friends, family,
1: friends, friends, dear friends. So,
3: and um. how did you feel when you got the honour? Well, yeah, honoured. Did you go to a christening?
1: No, but that's the interesting thing, right? Because I. I got christened. I'm not religious. And as a result, I have godparents.
3: And as a result, you won't go to hell. Crucially. <laughs> That's what's important.
1: And believe me, there's a lot in the pro column for that happening.
3: Yeah. It's good to just cover your basis, I think, with things like that.
1: But now, because I am, well, I'm actually probably agnostic rather than I am an atheist, but I don't intend to christen my offspring. But I would like them to have godparents. One, mm. because it's like an extra present on birthdays. And two, it's also, you know, an extra layer, isn't it? It's an extra layer of guardianship that's available.
3: It also gives you an in with the child right so when that child's a bit older they're like ah oh, this is my godfather this is not just some man who comes to my parents house. You know what I'm the saying. Hang out,
1: yeah. yeah yeah yeah. No for sure you have more of a you I guess you forge more of a relationship but I don't know it's not legally binding is it?
3: Uh, I I don't know actually. I can't imagine it is. I I mean but you know what higher power do we serve than uh, the papal?
1: <laughs> exactly yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if you let's say the worst was to happen could you imagine saying to like the grandparents of the child no no yeah I will look after her because I am the god I am the godfather they'd be like fuck off no
3: yeah, but they might they might they might prefer the child to be with you because you've got the farm
1: mm, yeah naturally a, Yeah, that's a <laughs> nice
3: place for a child to grow up
1: naturally yeah the, the sydenham, <laughs> farm, yeah. <Huge>.
3: sydenham farm Yeah, sydenham farm
1: um, how are you otherwise? Anything else you want to you want discuss before we get into the meat of this? Well,
3: we are going to get into the meat of it, aren't we? I think maybe we should just... Uh...
1: Go straight to it. Okay, well, um, in which case, we will talk about the Israel, the pro-Israel and pro-Palestine protests that happened this weekend. And thanks to the magic of editing, when I finish this sentence, we will be joined by Politics Joe's producer, Laura Beveridge, who was at one of the marches this weekend.
3: Not
4: another one?
1: It's the Politics Joe podcast podcast producer laura hello
4: hello thank you for having me oh, it's a, oh
1: she's stolen the line yes very good to have you here thanks for joining us thanks for accepting the invite
4: the rage um, the, oh, the no. rage in your eyes
3: <laughs>
1: not someone else doing it as well he um, actually
3: he like twinged like that
1: um thank you for accepting the invite to come this side of the camera lens and making your on-screen debut laura what should oh, we're gonna have to there'll be a name strap, nickname
4: Produ- producer laura i don't know the other scottish one not bad
1: <laughs> not bad it's a bit descriptive we'll, we'll figure it out i dare dare i invite the audience to um
3: not to, to alistair campbell's daughter <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, the anti-nappo baby um okay guys so two protests this weekend in london first of all uh a the a repeat mass demonstration in favor of palestine on saturday and then uh, on Sunday, also uh, a pro-Israeli demonstration. Uh, Laura, you were at the march on Sunday. We'll talk, I think we'll just take them in chronological order before we start drawing on your experiences at that, at that march. Um, so let's deal with Saturday and the sort of... Uh, the Met Police said it was about 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was were, big. They were reckoned out marching. It's caused, well, quite a commotion, to be, to be, to be honest with you, about in the British media, um, about these marches and, and somewhat ironically, uh, the people, the people most enraged and bothered by this March, uh, generally speaking, could be probably be categorized into the free speech brigade who normally are pretty much like our, oh, our fundamental freedoms and, and rights, rights of free speech is being eroded. Um, they didn't, they haven't extended broadly speaking that right to these demonstrations, uh, Ava. Give us a little bit of a summary of the kind of reaction and political feeling uh, around this demonstration that happened on
3: Saturday. So I did pop down. Um, but yeah, there was about 100,000 people who were on a pro-Palestine march. And then there was a, an adjacent march that was a ut Tahrir march. And that's a, it's more of a fundamentalist group. They were marching adjacent rather than alongside the pro-Palestinian march. Right, that, That's really important to understand what I'm going to say next, which is there were some people who were on that march who have allegedly committed acts that are, well, the Met Police deemed not decent. So they were shouting jihad, they were shouting pro-Hamas rhetoric and some of them had allegedly had signs that were in support of Hamas and those images and a couple of videos from that subsect of the march I mean, 10 people were arrested right out of 100,000 people who went. Those people have become the focal point for the entire march. So um, this morning, that, all day yesterday and this morning, there were a lot of commentators, quote unquote, who have been lamenting, the, uh, lamenting mu- multiculturalism. Um, a dog whistle, essentially, to say that this is the, the root cause of anti-Semitism is that march. Unfairly, I would argue, because that is a subsect of that march, Mm. Um, a very peaceful march in all in all. Um, There was also an incident on the tube. There was a TFL driver who, I mean, from the video, it appears that there was someone over the tannoy shouting free, free, and the carriage would respond Palestine. What happened was a lot of people have got on the tube um, to go to the march. Everyone's got their banners, their flags. It was quite obvious where they were going. The tube driver said something on the lines of, I couldn't get a day of work, but have a good day today and stay safe, free, free, and then everyone chanted back, Palenstein. People now want him sacked and worse, arrested. So that's been the nature of the discourse mm. off of the back of that march.
1: There's a lot there that I want to um, interrogate, not least the point about multiculturalism and I guess the TFL thing for me seems, seems quite simple in that it's it would appear to be an issue for the TFL and not an issue for the police.
3: It um, probably wasn't advisable.
1: 100. percent You know,
3: on a 2,000-person carriage to, yeah. to, to start a chant like that. I
1: assume it's but, in the but, TfL's terms and conditions that you're probably not allowed to make political pronouncements over the Tannoy system. <laughs> I feel like that's probably a given. Yeah, uh, that feels pretty like day one at train driver school. I don't know, but, but e- I, equally, you know, I think it's I think it's an internal matter. Football,
3: they, I mean, okay, that, that actually no, that that would completely break my point because I would say this is not a fo- you shouldn't be football football fine. There should be no footballification of this mm. uh, of this discussion. However, there it has been quite loose and fast about what train drivers can shout over the tannoy and what certain um, train staff shout when they're on the platform. So, if it's not clear in the rules, I don't see why the guy should lose his job over it.
1: Yeah, oh, Well, he certainly shouldn't be arrested, I don't think. No. Um, and we'll come back to multiculturalism but let's talk about this. Let's talk about the, the, the kind of the, the more extreme elements of that march on Saturday because this is the way with every kind of demo, right? We've all seen it, every single one we've been to. There are always fringe elements there that are far more extreme than, let's say, um, Jeff, who's at the demo just because he sort of vaguely wants to express his solidarity with the Palestinian people. If, if as some people are suggesting, that the kind of, the entire demo was like a hotbed, a hotbed of Islamist fundamentalism, do we really think... That one hundred thousand people would be openly marching through central London, calling for jihad yeah no we don 't we clearly don 't think that a separate point literally on the phrase jihad it means different things to different people, so your westernized understanding of that is essentially um holy war right it's it's the uh, you 're probably thinking of sort of like Either recent recent conflicts in the Middle East, you're maybe thinking about the Crusades, and your kind of um, and your interpretation of that is literal physical violence. There are, um, and I'm almost certainly going to bastardize this, so I apologize to people in advance. But there are steps to jihad, and within you know sort of non extreme interpretations of Islam, jihad does not mean you know starting to fight people. It's 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 sort of um, it's a challenge and a conflict with sin. And it's about personal development, um, you sort of improving yourself in a spiritual way. And I think that's a, a subtlety and a nuance that should be pointed out. And I'm not saying, by the way, that whoever shouted this was, was, was um, doing that. I don't know the full context of it, but I just think that's an important nuance that we should point out to people nonetheless. Laura, there were some extreme elements there, right? There was a guy with the Shahada flying that. There were some... I saw a photo of someone who just had a, a paper cardboard sign and it was it literally just said, I fully support Hamas. So mm. that that person <laughs> that person has no get out. <laughs> uh, unfortunately for them, they've kind of made their own bed. They're gonna have mm. to lie line that one. But for people who are saying that because of these fringe elements, because of these this sort of smaller group of people who are who are doing this, they no longer feel safe, or that perhaps there's a um, a problem in british society that needs to be addressed do you think that that argument is credible
4: i think well i think first of all it's important to say that the guy that flew the shahada flag like was arrested on suspicion of inciting racial hatred by the police so it's definitely not condoned it was taken very seriously and and he was arrested but i think that doesn't matter because or it doesn't matter to the people that were at the rally, the pro-Israel rally on Sunday, because there was a very tangible sense of fear. Mm. And a lot of that was to do with the 100,000 people that took to the street in support of Palestine. Um, there was one attendee I spoke to who said that London let 100,000 mass protesters march in the streets of the city, which is quite unfair. Like As we've just spoken about, they weren't 100,000 mass protesters. But he later did qualify, like in... Um, the next part of our conversation, that he's there to to liberate Gaza from Hamas. Palestinians deserve much more than Hamas. Hamas is keeping hostage not just the two hundred Israelis, but more than two million Palestine, Palestinian civilians.
5: Mm.
1: That's a really interesting point because what you're pointing to there, and I think this I think this has been evident over the last few months in the reaction to the horror, the atrocity that you know yes happened on October seventh, that Hamas, when Hamas this incursion into Israel. And again, the atrocities that have been happening since, with the indiscriminate bombing of Gaza, the sort of the fact, the truth, the objective reality, I think has largely been lost. And it's one—it's one of the reasons, actually, why we've been sort of reluctant or slightly more, um, slightly, slightly less gung ho about covering this than we have about you know other topics, right? It's because, actually, regardless of what you say, regardless of of sort of uh, the objective reality of what you're reporting or anything like that, people have already largely made up their minds about this conflict. They've made up their minds about which side they support and they've made up their minds about which side they don't and so you end up in a situation. And I, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to sort of um, lessen the validity of the feeling of that person at the pro-Israel Israel march, but clearly 100,000 pro-Hamas people were not walking through central London on Saturday Nonetheless, that person feels like that's what that was, and I think both sides of this argument have not only um, dehumanised each other to such an extent that you'll end up saying, you know, that the the, the deaths of the two hundred more than two hundred people at that music festival are regrettable, but unfortunately, you know, uh, a necessary part of resistance against the colonial power. Or the people who say, you know, um, that. Gaza should be turned into a car park and that the people that live there are human animals. They have clearly dehumanized each other to such an extent that they feel like those things um, are valid to say. But they also are incredibly reductive about each, each the, their opponents. So if you support Palestine, you you, you support Hamas is, is the is the logic of what that, that individual said there. Right. Um, and similarly, you know, people have been offering very uncharitable views to um Jewish people who may well be grieving, mourning the, the attacks that they experienced, but equally aren't particularly supportive or indeed hostile and aggressive towards the Netanyahu government and the, the drift to the right that Israel is experiencing. I feel like there is just a complete lack of any form of nuance in this discussion. And, and that's actually, th- that quote there, you've kind of, this is a pretty neat example.
4: Oh, yeah, I would 100% agree. I think something that was very obvious at the rally was that there was a conflation of Judaism, the Jewish diaspora with the Israeli state, and but also with the Netanyahu government in particular, which oh, interesting. is interesting, considering especially how before October 7th, there was quite big upset in Israel over um, Netanyahu's plans to allow the government to overturn the Supreme Court. Um, so he wasn't a popular figure and I don't think it's fair to conflate all these different groups um, but that was definitely something that was happening, not least by Michael Gove who spoke at the rally and said that the IDF embody the Jewish spirit, which mm. I thought it was quite strange to suggest like, or to kind of make an army a religious force
1: mm. Yeah, that's um, it's, I think it's, it's doubly provocative those remarks isn't it because depending on your interpretation I guess, the most generous you could the most generous interpretation of those remarks is that he views the IDF as a defensive force and that the spirit of Judaism you know is is one of defense that's probably the most the most generous one the more the more ugly interpretation of it which i I, I don't think he meant but it's certainly one way of interpreting it is that essentially you know that the, the actions of the IDF in Gaza at the moment are, are sort of descendant from the, from the tenets of Judaism, um, which, for me, I don't think that... I think you'd struggle to suggest that those two things are interconnected. Mm.
6: In the nation of Israel, people can live freely and love freely. Israel is the only nation in the Middle East where you can have a pride march. And we see an Israeli pride flag over there. When I see that flag, I feel pride. I feel pride in Israel's tradition of inclusivity, humanity, and democracy. And Israel also now has citizen soldiers, the IDF, who are there to defend Israel and the Jewish people. And we heard earlier from one of our speakers the difference between the IDF and Hamas. The IDF are there to protect civilians. Hamas exists to slaughter civilians. The IDF embody the Jewish spirit. Hamas want to kill every Jewish citizen of Israel. They must not win. They will not win. We stand with Israel now and
1: forever. I, I don't know about you, but watching the, watching, watching the videos that, that you got from the march, I found it, this is a bit of a tangent, but the sort of the, the style of oratory that Michael Gove employs. And I think every, everyone in Westminster, generally the view, right, is that Michael Gove is, you know, is a good speaker, is, you know, a um, one of, if you, I don't know, when there's been iconic moments in the House of Commons, traditionally the sort of senior Tories have often put Gove up to deliver, to deliver the speech, crunch Brexit votes. Um, you know, the key, the key moments, he's often the one that speaks. And watching him address the crowd, I thought, was, I thought it was really telling, to be honest with you. That even just the contrast between him and Jonathan Reynolds mm-hmm. in, in, in their delivery and watching, a, watching who by all accounts and all commentators and politicians think is sort of possibly the Conservatives' most gifted speaker, actually really struggle to kind of deliver a, an impactful stump speech. Um, that was my, certainly my interpretation anyway. I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, you, if, if it felt the same in the crowd.
4: I think it's interesting to hear you say that, like just having listened to it, because in the crowd, I felt like what he was saying was going down quite well and it definitely went down better than what Jonathan Reynolds said. And obviously mm-hmm. that's just for me standing in the crowd, listening to people around me and can't speak for everyone there. But um Michael, yeah, as you said, Michael Gove was very, Britain stands with Israel. Um, Jonathan Reynolds took a slightly different angle, which was the, condemnati- the condemnation of all terrorism and standing united against terrorism, um, which I think is a little less of a strong approach than Michael Gove mm. was taking. The
1: condemnation of terror. There cannot be any equivocation, any caveats, any ifs or buts. It must simply be the condemnation of terror and the simple message that we must bring them
5: home. Do
1: you think, do you think as well that perhaps, if that's, if that's the sort of objective reality of being on the ground, that perhaps it's my political biases showing there a little bit, and that perhaps in the same way that I thought Gove wasn't that hot a speaker, mm-hmm. the way that the crowd reacted to him would perhaps be indicative of their, their political biases, and that perhaps they are more receptive to him as a conservative figure than necessarily Jonathan Reynolds as a Labour figure.
4: Maybe. I don't want to say that the reaction to Jonathan Reynolds was cold because it definitely wasn't. Mm. It just wasn't as warm as the reaction to Michael Gove, I felt. Mm. And yeah, I think there was, generally speaking to people in the crowds, um, listening to the speakers, there was seemed to be a lot of appreciation for Rishi Sunak and the British government and the way that the British government have responded and been so strong in their support of Israel and Israel's right to defend itself. Like that came across very strongly, that the people in the crowd were very appreciative of that. Saying that, um, I found it interesting that quite, I heard going back to what we were talking about with the uh, rally on Saturday, People didn't feel safe. And just to bring it back to that, like even though the government is being so clear that we are on the side of, or not side, but like, that we um, support Israel, Britain stands with Israel, that people still didn't feel safe in London.
3: Mm. Well, I mean, there's a very serious conversation to be had about what, I mean, some of the things that, that went on, the, the minor, like please take my words with nuance, but the some things that were done at that pro-Palestine rally, were disgusting. Mm -hmm. And if you were a British Jewish person, yeah, you would look at that and go, I don't feel safe here. Mm -hmm. And that is a, I think, this is the thing, right? So Suella Braverman, yesterday it was announced she would be meeting with Sir Mark Rowley today to talk about um, uh, the language that was used and why didn't the Met Police take a firmer hand with it, right? But I look at that and I guess because you've seen so many dog whistles from Braverman over the past few weeks, you sort of go like, do you even really care? Or do you just, is this because your auntie, what was ever at that march rather than actually caring for the people who might have been affected by what was said mm. and maybe that's just me being cynical but i i don't really know how much you do care i mean you know what 3 million pounds went to protecting jewish jewish synagogues um, schools schools is that is that enough are, are, you know i i know people who aren't sending their kids to school mm-hmm. still
4: mm-hmm. Yeah. so i didn't i didn't mean to suggest there that um, the the fear wasn't legitimate sorry oh if that god, came no. across yeah sorry no no no
1: no and i th- i think actually that you know whilst we're talking about i think probably because we're we're talking about these two uh, protests in comparison we're sort of perhaps our view our view is sort of slightly um sort of focused on that but there has been you know a more than 1000% increase in hate crimes against jewish people recorded by the metropolitan police yeah. right mm-hmm. since this has started so it's not that they're kind of going oh god those scary protests mm-hmm. it's like no there are there are hate crimes being committed mm-hmm. against Jewish people now, as a result of it, and so yeah, I totally agree with you. Their fear, their fears are legitimate, and and to be honest with you, even if even if those hate crimes weren't happening, who are you to say to someone your fear is not legitimate? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if they tell you they're scared, you just you, you believe them and you accept that they're scared. Do you know what I mean? It's it's not it's whether or not you think that the the reason they're scared is you know logical or follows. Mm-hmm. It's sort of irrelevant, isn't it? Because if if that's how someone feels, that's how they feel, and it's something that has to be addressed. Um,
3: well, I mean, the, the the point of it as well is that the, the, a big portion of the group that was organised was, you know, the anti-racists, right? So a lot of these people who go on these marches are because they are anti-racism, and being anti-Semitic would fall under that bracket. Mm. So if you are one of the uh, one of the few people who really think that f- for something going on in Gaza, you now have a right to an a- to attack a Jewish person in London, you're out of your head, mm. like you need to go to prison, yeah. Mm-hmm. outrageous.
1: Yeah, completely. I, to your point about kind of the political maneuvering of Suella Ravman here, I think it's, um, I, think, I think you can say it is that, because as Laura quite rightly said, you know, the police have arrested people. Mm. The police are looking, the reason I told you about that sign that said, I fully support Hamas. The reason I've seen that is because the Met have tweeted it and said, who was holding this sign? We want to speak to them. Why Because they're going to get fucking nicked obviously right I th- it feels to me like posturing and it feels to me let if we talk about this particularly in, in the context of multiculturalism right let's go back to what you were saying earlier you know has the 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 the, the refrain that's coming out that that multiculturalism has failed essentially because of, because of seeing seeing this protest, and that for me really gives away the prejudices of the people that are saying that right mm because they're not, tweeting, uh, they're not tweeting about the pro-Israeli march and saying multiculturalism has failed. You know, they're, they're, they're tweeting the march that is predominantly attended by, people, by Muslims and people of colour. And they're saying it about that march. Because, te- you know, what, 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 are, what are we saying here? It, people, of, people of different ethnic backgrounds form up multicultural Britain. That includes Jews that includes muslims it includes black black people if you're only saying that the pro palestinian march is evidence that multiculturalism has failed us what you're literally just outing yourself being like there are too many muslims in the street mm. It's like it's 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 I don't even I don't even know if I want to engage with it further than that. It's just embarrassing. I
3: know. But I think you do need to engage with it because the, the point is, is that if you're watching a rolling news station, right, and you're watching coverage of that and that's the sort of commentary that you're listening to and you're only hearing that and you're not hearing, you know, any kind of rebuttal to it you'll go oh my god yeah yeah the muslims want to kill us that's what they want to do Mm. you're riling people up you're you know you're these sort of dog whistles are setting a really dangerous precedent and it's making people fearful
1: i think it's completely irresponsible yeah i agree i think it's completely irresponsible and i think it ties into the media narratives around this to be honest with you um whether It's it's
3: tensions like that it's nuts
1: yeah whether it's you know kind of the um the, the reporting of unverified claims by, for example, the IDF, whether it's the, the sort of the, the mindless repetition of Israel has a right to defend itself, but they're not challenging the politicians that are saying that on your radio station when the thing that you're asking, asking them about is collective punishment and a war crime. Allowing a politician to endlessly repeat Israel has a right to defend itself without challenging and saying, does that, does that include the war crimes that are currently taking place? It it all fits into this broader media media environment of um, demonizing, stigmatizing the Palestinians and not treating the sort of the humanitarian crisis that's happening there with the same level of sympathy and empathy that we saw for, for the atrocities that happened in Israel. And I just I despair, to be quite honest with you, the whole the whole thing. Maybe, maybe, you know, to take the conversation away from, um, you know, the editorial justification we've given previously for like our approach to covering this. I think there's, there's honestly, I think there's a personal element of this in me, which is that I just feel, I feel fucking sick talking about a lot of this. Like it, it like it genuinely upsets me, genuinely upsets me. And um, I don't know if there's much more I can say about that. To be honest with you,
3: for me, it's I'm not. We're not there. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. discussion that we've been having a lot of the time, isn't it? That we're mm-hmm. not there. You cover this side of it when the when we can go to the Rafa crossing that is a conversation we'll be having
1: we'll be sending you there will straight there well, straight yeah, to the I, rapid I'm, crossing I'm
3: glad that we've done it on here now because I was <laughs> going to broach this con- conversation with you later Yeah. but um, I'm glad that we've done it now and we've put it on record mm-hmm. but yeah I mean you know when that news broke a couple of weeks ago yeah I mean you, you're I think most of us can say you're probably once removed from someone who was you know adjacent to the festival or was around the festival or knew someone who was there and you know that's what you're talking about in your private circles and it's it's very difficult to be um, an objective, uh, yeah, to be objective when something like that is so personal. Mm-hmm. I, um, I also, I really, um, I think there's a, a time and a place where you you sit back, and you understand it's not your turn to speak, and I think that's what I really felt those two weeks are like the week, the week because we actually we've been talking about it quite a lot. We've been everywhere talking about it, not just on here on. Mm various stations, both you and I have. Um, but certainly at the beginning, when you're not there, I don't have connections in Gaza that I can text and talk to and get on the ground information. I'm just regurgitating what I've seen online, hmm. which is what enough people were already doing and spreading... A,
1: a, misinformation. A, yes,
3: smorgasbord of misinformation, you know?
1: Delicious smorgasbord. But do
3: you know what I mean? And it's like, is that helpful?
1: Yeah. Uh, let's dip this mis- misinformation into this raclette. Yum, yum, yum.
3: <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry.
1: Um, you're, no, I, you're, that's a, it's a really good point. And um, I perhaps cheapened it by making a joke, so I'm sorry.
3: Don't, don't worry about it. Um, There's also a difference between being an activist and a journalist, right? And I think that when people listen to, to... I like to think that when people listen to us, it's because we've actually... We know enough about it that we feel confident to talk to other people and explain the story to them without being in the region, I didn't feel like that was something I could do.
5: Mm.
1: Uh, Speaking of people in the region, Laura, you interviewed um, a couple of people who escaped from Israel, left, um, either coming to the UK or others who've gone elsewhere. Would you be able to um, tell us a little bit about the conversations you had while you were there?
4: Yeah, so I, um, I spoke to two women who were in the crowds at the rally who had both managed to escape Israel on chartered flights. They stayed in the Gaza envelope, so the areas that were attacked by Hamas. Um, And just, I think the speakers who spoke on stage who had families who were um, either taken hostage by Hamas or murdered by Hamas, and these two women that I spoke to, their stories were so powerful. Their grief was incredibly raw. And I think the fact that they could even, like, stand and speak eloquently about what had happened to them and their family was just... It was quite powerful, and I'm super grateful that these two women spoke to me and shared their story with me. So the first woman was called Efrat, and she is Israeli, and she in fact
2: why don't why don't I we play the clip rather than me explaining it? Roll the clip. <laughs> I'm Israeli, and my husband is Australian. Um, it's very it's a very unique circumstances for me because it's the first time I felt like a refugee myself. I felt, on one hand, very very scared. On the other hand, very lucky that I can actually take a break from the war, especially when I have a young, young child. And we did it especially for her. If I think, if I didn't have a young child, I would still be in Israel. But she, just to give us some sort of sense of um, peace and not going to the bomb shelter every five minutes, it was very important for us. Um, So I felt sad, I felt lucky. But I must say, I still feel a bit unsafe, even being in London. Um because you know as it always feels like the people who are more into the division and the hate that we are outnumbered and there's more emphasis towards the the hate and and discriminating and going against Israel and its actions so I'm still feeling unsafe I must say I'm even hosting um, a mom and a daughter in my apartment at the moment. They need a shelter because we, not every house in Israel has a shelter. So we have a shelter, so we have a mom and daughter staying at our apartment so they can have an easy access to a shelter when there is a siren. So I think it's light. You can see the light in this very, very dark, dark moment.
1: What, what was your feeling coming away from speaking to Efra? How, how did you feel after you chatted to her?
4: Just like I said, I'm quite amazed that they could speak so like, strongly and coherently after what happened to them. And the fact that like she's, her house in Israel is still used, being used as a bomb shelter by another mother and child. Um, and again, I, I think it's sad that even though she's in London, she's still feeling unsafe. And the other woman I spoke to was called Segal, um, and she's 56. And she has a story of also escaping Israel, if we should play that one as well.
5: Absolutely. We didn't know yet that uh, um, the terrorists have arrived, entered Israel. Then we started to hear um, uh, shoot guns, guns shooting. And uh, we have a community WhatsApp of our moshav, And then we got the message to stay in the shelter because of the terrorists. Uh, got inside. We stayed in the shelter for uh, s- seven hours, uh, frightened the hell. We didn't have a gun, we didn't have a pistol, we didn't have anything. We only had a kitchen knife to protect us because we knew that the door of the shelter will not be ter- uh, closed enough, that the t- terrorists can open the door. Uh, Sunday morning, uh, we've been told we have to leave the place. At uh, two o'clock, they took us out with the army, the people from the Moshav, Moshav and Absor. We went through the fields, not from the main way, through the fields, like in the Holocaust. When we were running out from the Germans,
1: pretty harrowing listening to that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's tough, really tough. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have much more to add than that. Add, add than that. Do you guys have anything else you'd like to say? We happy?
3: Mm. I'm not happy, but you know.
1: No, obviously, yeah, obviously not happy. Um, we'll try and we'll try and get along to. Uh, I, I'm so bored of having to caveat everything I say about this. We are, you know, but to both sides, it we will try and get get ourselves along to one of the Palestinian demos um, to be able to provide that perspective as well. But you've got to go somewhere first. Laura, thank you so much um, for coming on. Thank you for being there on Sunday, and thank you for all the brilliant work you do on helping us get this podcast. Thank you.
0: Outwards. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.
1: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.
0: It's the Politics Show podcast.
1: Ava, fantastic to have Laura with us on the podcast, usually behind the camera, making her debut. Glad to have her with us. Mm. Um, She's disappeared again now, thanks to the magic of editing. Mm. Let's talk about the Renters Reform Bill. Let's. So could you give us just a sort of precease, over-the-top view, what's happening in Parliament today and and what's it got to do with people who live in rented accommodation?
3: Well, it's back for another reading. So this was going through the last time that um, Parliament was in session. Mm. It was... Paused, obviously, because, uh, sorry, I just want to check. It says there's a second reading, and I thought it was the third reading. Um, Where did you see that, Laura? I I mean, maybe it is. Anyway, um, so the bill is Michael Gove's brainchild, and it's supposed to give renters extra powers, or not extra powers, some kind of security when they are renting off of their landlord. This obviously ran into contention immediately because there are a lot of Tory MPs who are landlords and they also represent constituencies where there are a lot of landlords <laughs> and the landlord lobbying game is strong. Mm. So um, this bill has been watered down, watered and watered down. Um, today there are rumors, I mean, by the time that this goes out, oh wait, it won't be till the evening. So by tomorrow we might have found out if any of these have come to fruition, but. The no fault evictions, which was kind of the the proper cornerstone of mm. the bill, um, and would be really beneficial to tenants, might be scrapped. Um, there's also discussion about pets. So in the bill, firstly, they were going to allow pets. To you, you couldn't ban pets from rented accommodation. That mm. might be watered down now as well. That you'll, it'll basically be a bit of advice to the landlord. That's like, if they're quite attached to it, can you just let them have it? <laughs> um, yeah, and other such bits like that. It's
1: interesting, isn't it? That there's this piece of legislation in theory should go some way to redressing the power imbalance that exists right between the renter and the landlord. To to, su- to suggest, I know one of the one of the favourite sort of um, arguments that you see when uh, Ed goes outside the sort of the landlord convention and like doorsteps them and says, you know, talk, talks talks them about the nature of their their business and their work is they like to say that they're a providing like a fundamental service a societal good by providing people with clean housing and that actually they're fairly put out by the process of of um having to provide the housing and and what they mean specifically by that is good quality housing that Mm -hmm. conforms to fire safety regulations that doesn't have mold damp that has working appliances etc now that is obviously a uh well it's certainly a interpretation of the relationship between the landlord and the tenant uh as someone who has direct experience of renting uh, in London and also in Cardiff? I can tell you that's not my experience of it. It's not anyone I know's experience of it, and I wouldn't want to speak for you. But as far as I understand, it, it's also not your experience of renting in London. That you are not some sort of almighty, powerful tenant with the power to sort of um, well fuck with your landlord and demand you know expensive pieces of furniture or um, you know the latest dishwasher or whatever it is. Yeah. And in actual fact, you're kind of at the whim of the landlord they can evict you should they desire to um oftentimes as well i my friends in the past and i actually have direct experience of this as well is you kind of you suggest let's say um oh the the fire alarm's broken Uh, it keeps going off in the middle of the night can you come round and fix the fire alarm and they begrudgingly do so after probably some fairly passive aggressive emails backwards and forwards and then Two months later, what's happened? Oh, no, you're being evicted. What, do, the two, do the two things have anything to do with each other? No, no, absolutely not. No, they have nothing to do with each other. Nothing to do with each other at all. It just so happens, I don't want you to live here anymore. Mm. And they have the power to do that because the power, the power imbalance is completely tilted in their favor, not least because they have the assets, they have the wealth, they have the, the money. The legislation also supports them. But secondly as well, because the rental market is so hot, they can just get rid of you and there will be someone else who will happily accept the the poor conditions, the, the low quality housing, because people because they're so desperate for somewhere to live, someone will tolerate. Your threshold for tolerance is higher than the next person that comes along who you know maybe has been sofa surfing for ten days and is absolutely desperate for somewhere to live.
3: Mm-hmm. The narrative on landlords has really changed as well dramatically in the last what thirty years, and that's because we don't have any social housing anymore, and so the rental like private rental market is is pretty much the only place that people can turn to, no mm-hmm. matter what pay you're on. I mean, 30 lot, years ago... A lot
1: of the time it is the old social housing, the old council housing. Of course it is, yeah. But they're now privately renting They've out have done, here. Yeah,
3: right to buy on it, and uh-huh. now they're renting it out. Um, I mean, I know stories from my family um, down in Bermondsey where, you know, a landlord <laughs> would be very unpopular in that area. Mm. <laughs> very. Mm. And now there's some kind of deity, mm. you know? They're writing parliamentary legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, I really have zero time. It's like probably the one thing that I will always be in completely partial on. <laughs> I have no time for you bringing in an income off of my income. Yeah. Sorry.
1: I think, yeah, I mean, on that argument for me, I think it's... Land- landlordism, it's, it's the redistribution of income, but in completely the wrong direction, if that makes sense. It is the transfer of wealth from the wage class to the asset class. Mm. Is the people who own housing, extracting a rent, I mean, obviously, we all know this, it's called rent, from people who can't. And because of the way that um, the property market in Britain functions, that also serves to deny those people in, in the wage class access to owning the thing that, that, that the landlord has. So you're, you're entrenching inequality, and you're also redistributing income away from people who actually, it should be working in the opposite direction. Do I think that uh, some landlordism, to some extent, is necessary in a functioning society? Yes, I do. Do I think that they should be able to charge exorbitant rents? Do I think that they should be able to provide low-quality housing? Do I think they should be able to kick their tenants out without giving any justification for doing so? No, I don't. I think you, if you, if you, if you look at those three things, you say, in, if, you, if, you, if you're to interpret the, the relationship between a landlord and a tenant as a conflict, there, there is only one interpretation, and it is that the landlords are fucking the tenants and have been for years. Mm-hmm. I think in tandem with, you know healthy count a healthy amount of council housing and affordable homes for people who want to buy and own them outright there's space to have a private rented sector the way that the private rented sector has expanded grown and now dominates particularly um, when i say dominates i mean particularly amongst the younger generation young professionals either in urban centers or actually just sort of younger people elsewhere in the country who can't afford to own their own home it's not right that the sort of the the ratio the composite mixture of those three different kinds of housing has shifted so dramatically towards private rented and there's it's a multifaceted puzzle there's all sorts of things to addressing that but i think one of the most obvious um and sort of short-term needed ones is an expansion and increased delivery of council housing
5: Mm,
3: absolutely i just um the one, one thing I would have loved to have seen in this bill that we're not going to see, and it's way too ambitious, I think, even for a Labour government to put in, is um, preventing buy-to-lets on new builds. I, for me, it is absolutely blood-boiling <laughs> rage thinking about how, you know, Mayor of London, like, similar schemes to the Mayor of London scheme will provide affordable housing. Those houses will be purchased by landlords and then rented out on for a a ridiculous cost i it's it's outrageous that Mm. that that's allowed to happen i mean i think there was a case as well in oxfordshire just a a couple of months ago where there were these two new builds that would have been perfect for you know a starter family lovely little houses they're bought they're already on the market rented like for rental Mm -hmm. that that is obscene Mm -hmm. the government should be providing some kind of Proper back to loan, not that crap ISA scheme that they've got going that actually allows people to buy somewhere to live in mm. rather than fueling a few people who are in a lobby that intimidate them into watering down legislation.
1: The help to, <laughs> the, the help to buy ISA you mentioned there is you can get, it's, it's something like 25%, right? There's 25% added on to what you've saved if you use it to buy a home. But I believe it has to be a new home. Mm. like It has to be a brand new build or...
3: A, a so, renovated home, yeah, yeah. There's
1: some kind of distinction between, yeah. You can you can get something else.
3: It has to be renovated like dramatically.
1: And is it up to ten grand?
3: It's uh, so it, it means that if you're if you're
1: three more than isn't it?
3: The ICER is up to ten grand in the autumn statements. Uh, Hunt is thinking about increasing that, mm. but it basically means that um, you can pay about five percent of your deposit. But if you're looking in London. If you are a single person and you would like to buy, you know, a measly little one bedroom just so that you can, you know, not to be in the rain, um, you know, um, sleep somewhere,
2: mm-hmm.
3: then, well, you, you can only, you can buy like, what, four hundred. it's about 400,000 pounds, isn't it, that you would need to. And the ISA doesn't quite cover that.
1: <laughs> Saying that again.
3: If you're a single person.
1: Yeah, because you need to combine, you need to combine the incomes of two people, right, to mm-hmm. get the loan value from the bank uh, obviously another way of doing that. You'd be able to do it as a single person if you had a fucking ginormous deposit, right? You'd
3: well, yeah, able, of course, yeah. If you put that's down, the...
1: let's say, I don't know, fucking 300 grand on that 400 grand house, you're then able to get a mortgage. The entire point that all of this misses is that who the hell is accruing 300,000 well, pounds by themselves?
3: You could do it off, you know, you could do it with about a 75,000 pound deposit. Mm. But um, if you earn, say the London, you know, average of... £38,000, if you're paying £1,500 a month in rent, then you are not going to be able to save up said deposit. (laughs)
1: The really frustrating thing for me in all of this as well is that within the hypothetical that you've just um, outlined, the monthly mortgage repayments that that person would be expected to pay will be around roughly £1,500 a month. Mm. The person you're talking about has paid their rent on time every month, for the last, take your pick, 5, 10, 15 years, right? They have a track record. The whole, the, the whole business of whether a, when a bank is deciding to enter into a mortgage agreement with you is they're, essentially they're judging, A, whether they're going to be, making, be able to make any money from the transaction, and B, if you're going to reliably make your payments on time. If you, if, if you have a list of payments that goes, here is me paying £1,500 every single month for the last 15 years, I don't understand why that isn't evidence enough to be able to show them to be able to show to a bank and say i can maintain these i can maintain these mortgage payments and if you address that problem and you, and you allow and you allow that to serve as evidence enough and you then go to perhaps let's say state inter- intervention to provide the deposit that people need so i don't know whether you probably have to be signed scale you can do lump sum obviously but for the sake of this argument let's just say you give you were to give people 50 grand 75 grand the government gets that money back when your house is sold but you're now paying towards an asset, you're no longer subject to the whims of a landlord, you have improved housing security and a higher degree of dignity, pride in self, pride in place and a firmer root in the community you live in. What's to say you can't do that? Mm -hmm. Why couldn't you do that?
3: Yeah, I've always, I mean, always spoken to many number of Tories about this, about the the best option that you could give young people is if you can prove that you've paid rent every single month on time for seven years, then you should be eligible for a government backed 100% loan. The same way that, you know, our parents' generation were offered 110% back mortgages. And then you get into this conversation with, okay, yeah, but then what happens if you default on the payment and then we'll have another housing crisis? And it's like, listen, listen, all right? With this rent thing, if you miss a payment, even by a day, like, you know, Roger, the landlord, is taking you up the small claims court. He doesn't give a crap about you. But that maybe that's like laissez-faire government, right? Because what you're doing is instead of the bank taking the risk, the landlord is taking the risk. Mm. But if you're the tenant, you... Oh, I'm getting really angry. I'm getting really worked up. <laughs> it just annoys me so much that even that this, that the idea that somehow a government-backed loan would lead to the same... 2008 housing crisis that we, we, want, we saw back then would be in any way similar to if you offer these government-backed loans to people who've previously paid rent on time. It's not the same!
1: I think the riposte to that as well is, um, <laughs> my good man, my, my good parliamentary representative, uh, there is already a housing crisis. Mm. It's just that you're not at the sharp end of it. Uh, it. As the average age at which someone can own a home ever increases and gradually approaches 40, there is a housing crisis in this country. Housing
3: emergency. It's they're talking just
1: because you own like six of them and you rent them out as HMOs you don't think there's you don't think there's a problem with that you don't think there's a crisis yeah when he says there could be a crisis what he means is landlords will have to sell the the houses they own and that is for my <laughs> that is for my money not the same as quite literally millions of people not being able to get onto the housing ladder
3: yeah liquidate the market my friend you know do it that, gosh, that argument that they talk about, you know, when some people go, we work really hard for this home and we deserve all of the, you know, the, the price that it has accu- accrued, you know, over the past 20 years. And it's like, listen, Sandra, <laughs> you bought this house for £35,000 and now it is worth £700,000. <laughs> that is an unreasonable markup.
5: <laughs>
1: yeah, I think that there's, a, there's possibly an argument around that, right? There's an argument around... At the moment, capital gains tax only comes in on second homes, right? And I think as a, as a pragmatist, you look at the increase in, in house value, and I think there's possibly an argument to say that either an increase in stamp duty or an expansion of capital gains to accommodate for the fact that a huge amount of people have earned, in most cases, not all, but a lot of them, six figures, apropos of being born... Being a boomer, basically, getting a house relatively cheap, maintaining their payments, and then 40 years later, we've heated the housing market to such an extent that it goes, oh, all of a sudden, you've actually just produced £600,000 out your ass for doing largely nothing.
3: Well, also, like, but from benefiting from whatever infrastructure the government has put in around you, right? So Mm -hmm. if you you suddenly live in an area that now has, I don't know, a nice leisure centre or a station, Mm -hmm. you know, things that a good school, things Mm -hmm. the government have paid for, the council... Mm -hmm. You, you've you benefited from that, right? So why do you not have to pay anything back to say, thanks for the £500,000 bonus mm. you've given my house?
1: There's also a question. That's one, that's one route of doing it. The other route, and this is also an interesting one for me, is that um, millennials and... What's the one underneath millennials? Gen Z? Yeah. Yeah, they stand to be the... it's So sharpest decline in living standards from the generation before coming to them. However... Because of the, the problem we've just outlined, i.e., these people who've become incredibly wealthy over without doing a great deal of necessarily work, when they die, their inheritance goes to millennials, Gen Zers, who are, whilst being pretty, pretty relatively, as in, and when I say relatively, I mean compared to the generations that came before them, worse off. They stand to then become uh, the richest generation later in life once that inheritance filters through. So, if we were again to be talking about trying to redress redress that balance you could possibly talk about maybe some kind of expansion of inheritance tax to kind of tap into that
3: but then you're going after the potentially lower middle classes rather than going after you know mm. i i i actually don't believe you should go after uh, people who've just managed to buy their own home um i i would like to go after the landlords
5: <laughs> if Very you good. if you
3: pass away and you've got an entire tower block of ex social housing mm-hmm. yeah that. That shit's not going to your kids. No way. That's going back into the community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think that. Well, there was some talk about Hunt in the Autumn Statement next month, getting uh, doing his little stamp duty fix again. Mm. No stamp duty to to uh, to incentivise the markets um, to stimulate <laughs> the
1: markets. I'm interested to see that'll be the la- that'll be the last one before a general election, won't it?
3: Uh, Depending on the timing yeah. of it, but might have most... a spring budget as well. Yeah. Most likely. I sort of love um, all of the, the when is the election chat. Yeah. Because I, I don't know what this is, but for some reason I get messages off of people. Like, honestly, every other day being like, hey, there's a general election about to be called. Have you heard about this? And I'm like, no. <laughs> where did you hear that from? <laughs> Who's talking about it to you?
1: <laughs> there's, uh, there's like an FBPE Twitter space somewhere where someone with like... Uh, a slightly too zoomed in um, profile picture, but nonetheless, a blue tick has sort of said, "Yeah, we're, we're hearing that there's going to be a spring election," and then that that filters out into the into the surrounding online space and starts being DM'd to people like yourself, and you go, "That doesn't make any fucking sense. Where I, are you getting that from?" I mean,
3: shout out to this one guy who I don't even know who, how he had my my. I think we must have spoken briefly once, um, and he rang me. I'm not joking, seven times in one day when we were at Labour conference to tell me that the Tories were about to announce a general election. And I was like, please, can you stop phoning me? (laughs) (laughs) I'm really sorry.
1: There was, that has, do you remember, conference 2019, Mm. when basically like everyone decamped from, I think it was Brighton, back to Westminster, because... Well, it was a, it was a chain of events, wasn't it, that then precipitated the election. Mm. I can't remember what the what the specific short term pr- trigger was. Possibly prorogation. I can't remember.
3: Yeah, what was that catalyst? That was. Uh, I
1: remember everyone like leaving, and I think th- Corbyn didn't even give a speech. I don't think. I think his speech was cancelled.
3: Yeah. What was that? Uh, We're not going to be able to find that, am I? Yeah. I'm not going to be able to find that through a quick little Google.
1: Um, anything else you want to discuss on the episode before we draw a line
3: under this? Um, no. Let's go into. Yeah.
0: Happy Going days. Ava yeah. Santino, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Thank you, Ollie.
0: <laughs> Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com newsadfree news ad free.